I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day, everyone. On the show, I get to meet and interview so many extraordinary people, brave and brilliant entrepreneurs, super successful heads of business, people who devote their time to giving back in truly meaningful ways, and I admire them all. I truly do. Today's guest is all of that wrapped into one exceptional gentleman, and his name is Steve Malwish. Steve is a tech entrepreneur, investor, and board advisor. He's been based in Asia for the last 18 years. And from being a rising star in the world of big corporate, Steve went on to found four companies, the best known of which is Property Guru. His inspiration for that was born from personal frustration being a consumer in the world of real estate. We can all relate to that. And so he set out to increase transparency and empower consumers to make confident property decisions. He led that business as CEO for the first 10 years growing it with his co-founder from scratch into a prop tech uniform used by 40 million people in five countries with 1,500 staff and listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and who remains today on the board. In 2019, he started Planet Rise in response to the growing climate crisis and the 1 billion people on the poverty line who will be most affected. There, they aim to make the world a better place for our kids' future by investing in and helping organisations tackle climate change and social inequality using tech to achieve impact at scale. But there's more. He then went on to co-found Wavemaker Impact in 2021, Southeast Asia's first climate tech venture build fund. They will build a portfolio of climate tech unicorns, scalable, fast-growing ventures, that can each mitigate 100 million tonnes of GHG emissions, working with seasoned entrepreneurs. Steve is a remarkable guy. In 2007, he was awarded Spirit of Enterprise Award, and Property Guru itself as a business secured multiple industry awards, including CNBC's World's Best Property Portal and Influential Brands Outstanding Digital Brand Award. In this episode, as we get to know Steve... I'll be exploring different phases in his career, including when he had an experience hiring and then firing a bad cultural fit, and we've all grappled with that one, and why he believes he should have done it sooner, Uh, the reason he nearly caused disaster in a hyper-successful business by allowing it to scale too fast, a problem that, you know, some of us think, oh, wouldn't it be fantastic to have that problem, but not necessarily, and then his decision to migrate firstly from corporate to startup and then from mega successful business to devote himself to the cause of saving our planet. Steve is an exceptional gentleman. And with this, I say, welcome, Steve. Hi, Wayne. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you. Steve, let's jump in. And I guess just to get going, help me understand, help our viewers understand when you first became, uh, first stepped into a role where you were, had leadership as part of your responsibility. What was happening there? Yeah, I'd, I'd been working in the corporate environment for probably about uh, seven or eight years at that point, and uh, but working for a, a really great boss uh, who was hugely inspirational. And uh, as a result of expanding the business that we're working in, it's the telecoms industry at, at that stage. I had a phone call while skiing once, and he said, "Like you know, 
know, promote you to this role. And uh, I, I remember very fondly that kind of sense of excitement that I had, and uh, and also you know the the, the gratitude also for for him. And so uh, yeah, uh, and I was it was essentially a commercial business. I was running a sales and marketing team. And my clients were other telcos and mobile operators. And uh, yeah, it's a fairly young team. I was probably late 20s, early 30s at that stage from memory. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a big, big, large P&L in terms of financial. But uh, yeah, dispersed team, multiple geographies around Europe at that stage. So you really stepped into a very significant leadership role first up. How did you learn to be a leader? I think twofold. I think first of all, uh, working in a large organization at that stage, a company called Cable Wireless, I, I'd, I'd, I'd benefited from a whole bunch of training, whether it's how to do performance reviews or you know how to do interviews and you know this kind of thing. And that really, really helped provide sort of base level of structure. But also, you know, as I kind of alluded to a little bit just now, I had, I had a great role model in this case, the person who actually you know helped with you know getting that promotion for me to this leadership role, and I learned a lot from him in terms of how to delegate, how to support teams, how to manage upwards particularly, which in a large organization was particularly key. Yeah, I tried to, I guess, ultimately emulate some of the positive behaviors that he exhibited with my team. I'm not sure I've necessarily got that right, but that's kind of the, the, the two. So one was more formal and one was a bit more emulating the behaviors I saw from a leader who I really, really respected. And I saw him going to bat for the team and taking some of the, the crap away from the team. But when it came to praise, you know, the team did well, it was all heap on the team. And uh, that kind of taking responsibility for things which are bad or going wrong or tough, but also then shining a light on, on the team when things are going well, that kind of humility and support, I really, really value. Mm. I, tried to, I tried to emulate that as I took on this role. It's a fantastic story because uh, obviously we, we learn from role models and if you get a great role model early on, that gives you a flying start, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, it definitely helped having that. But I, I think, you know, the thing that I took away from that was, you know, uh, every day, I think I was, I was, you know, every week I was still learning and uh, making a whole bunch of mistakes. And even, even when I started building, you know, startups and, you know, I guess scaled a large startup, it was still still learning almost every day and every week <laughs> and making mistakes and realizing your own weaknesses sometimes. You know, that's a great segue, Steve, because obviously our podcast is all about hard yards in, in leadership and, you know, making mistakes is, uh, is something that uh, sometimes I think newer leaders think that only newer leaders do. But uh, I think for many of us that have been doing this for a while, we just come to expect that mistakes are part of what we do and we live with it right absolutely i guess the, the the trick is i guess not to keep making the same mistakes over and over again but certainly uh, you know i guess you know i had a relatively safe environment you know in a corporate to, to make those mistakes because there's more of a support infrastructure but i guess ultimately what i realized when i was kind of building my own businesses and startups the kind of buck stopped with you and no one else played a role and the support infrastructure wasn't there at all and so found that even more challenging. It was kind of, you know, leadership challenges on steroids a little bit at that point because, you know, you kind of had to put all that stuff in place. You had to provide all that support infrastructure in place as a leader. And so then the mistakes you made, whilst maybe the numbers in terms of, you know, financial terms, for example, were a lot smaller, the impact you had, both negative and positive, were a lot higher. And that was kind of, for me, one of the, as a leader, was probably the most challenging, you know. I think, you know, do, doing that in a more of a startup context or founder context rather than in a large organization. 
had a large organization, the challenges I think particularly were around just managing stakeholders upwards, doing a lot of the upward management as I kind of went through the the career progression. You know, I found that increasingly I was moving further and further away from you know my team and my customers and closer and closer to spending time just providing information or you know my own brand to support future career development or pay rises or performance reviews and this kind of thing to the powers that be and uh, that for me was quite hard and not something I particularly enjoyed doing which ultimately is why I kind of decided to move away from more corporate into more startup environment so focus on being your own boss but it's uh, <laughs> I really that came with a whole bunch of other challenges as well as a result <laughs> it's like whack-a-mole sometimes isn't it you you think I'll solve this problem but you don't realize that three others pop out yeah 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 exactly <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's dive into, you know, going back to you as kind of like an early leader and yeah. you're saying that one of the things that you kind of found found hard was kind of, I guess, managing the hierarchy and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Can you think of any particular instances in those earlier days where something kind of happened and you were like, oh, my gosh, how the hell do I deal with this one? Well, I think a couple, but maybe one was very much around what I really enjoyed doing was kind of building teams and building growing teams. And, you know, thankfully for most of the career in telecoms in late 90s into early 2000s of the the markets were growing and so the businesses were growing i guess that rising tide you know all the boats float and so building businesses in that environment was great but when what happened when you know the dot com boom bust happened uh, telecoms boom bust happened after that and so a lot of the clients i was working with were going chapter 11 and and, and declining uh, but we still had numbers to hit and the, what i found that the pressure obviously mounted in that respect but also we went from building to then actually being told to cut costs and that cost cutting team reduction piece was something which was extremely challenging you know up until that point i've been quite mm-hmm. fortunate because the business has been growing we were able to hire more people hire more people and carry on growing you start to promote people and and, and that's all great and when things are going well and i guess the performance issues are slightly hidden but then when the pressure starts you start to have to sort of stand back and start to think a little bit about okay is everyone pulling away is everyone up to par and also you know you know having to then for the first time you know, cut the team. And uh, that was something which was particularly tough. I, I really, really struggled with that. And I, I remember one particular case where, because we've been growing so fast, you know, and one team member done a fantastic job and she promoted her to head you know, as marketing director of the team. And But because we then had to cut in the firing line, of course, was like almost, you know, because she was in that position, she was one of the first to kind of, you have to hire, basically you have to cut where their costs are and rationalize. Unfortunately, you know, because of the position she was in, she was one of the first to go. And I remember to this day, very, very clearly the emotions I felt and sitting in that room with her and lots of tears on both sides, having to sort of break that news to her, the fact that because she's been done a great job, she'd been got promoted. Because she'd been promoted, she was the first in the firing line. And it was a fairly horrific process to go through, even if it was just one person at that point. Ultimately, it had to get rid of more people in the team. But it, it was, uh, you know, something which I remember to this day. It was very, very strong emotions, I feel, as a result of just telling that story because it was just a whole process to go through. She'd gone from being totally elated to then, you know, you know crushed in the space of a few months. But then, then she went on to do some fantastic stuff and the head corporate development for, for LinkedIn on a global basis. I think also then she's COO of Twitch now and you know, went on to do 
far better figure things that uh, you know ultimately she was destined to do so it was that act of almost freeing her to go and do something else you know it was actually in this case was very very true you know she's clearly a, a star no matter what organization she was going to be in so she did it did, did an amazing job but the, for, just for the, as a manager and a leader that was really hard the other thing I, I, I struggled a little bit with was um, just in an environment where you know, I had my peers and it, it was quite competitive and it was very uh, quite sales focused and, and therefore a lot of it was around positioning and a lot of it was around selling. And so rather than just doing a good job with your team in the business, I felt that increasingly I had to kind of then push upwards and, and promote upwards. And I really, really struggled with that, to be honest. So when it's part of this cost-cutting process, you know, when it came to, well, I got the opportunity to maybe take volunteer redundancy, we kind of engineered it a little bit because I went travel, I managed to negotiate a six-month break and then come back and, and then uh, because I'd hired my replacement, you know, it was very hard to find some, a role for me big enough, I guess, that I'd left. It's an equivalent kind of role size. So I, was, I was able to take volunteer redundancy. You know, I think that I, I really struggled with that, actually, just uh, the, the effort around managing stakeholders and the energy required to do that which, of course, is critically important if you want buy-in from people, want to influence people, and get people to come along on your journey with you and support you. It's not something which comes naturally to me. Is I kind of feel like people should be just doing it anyway, <laughs> but I don't. And so you have to invest time and effort and energy in it. And I, to this day, I do actually still struggle with that when it comes to you know getting the buy-in of people and just going through the process. I, I, I need to be better at that, for sure. Well, Steve, you, you, you've just given me a wealth of, of material here, and I'm sure you know, listeners are keen for me to unpack Kind of the two spaces that that we've just been been exploring. Let's let's go back to the first one and talk about you know having to you know we say let someone go and you know particularly in a situation like you've just described where that you know it's not like they've done something wrong. It's the exact opposite. They've actually they've virtually succeeded themselves in into a point where they where they have to be cut out. And you know I know talking to so many kind of founders and newer leaders who who listen to the show, you know this is this is one of the things that they they do find incredibly hard. I'm sure you've had to do it a few more times over the years. Are there any any things that you've learnt to do both in terms of like managing the, the conversation with the person and also just dealing with it yourself that kind of that, that you you would be happy to share with with our listeners? Yeah, I, I think as time went on, I guess you start to do it more more regularly and uh, you start to I guess get a little slightly desensitized to it, which is a good and bad thing. But I, I think for me if I reflect a little bit, sort of the journey then from the sort of corporate to more startup, you know, you know, I remember a conversation with a particular individual. We were probably in, in, in the company of building property guru at that stage. And we were probably about 30 staff at that point or maybe slightly more, maybe 40 staff at that point. And, you know, we were still therefore quite reliant on individuals in the organization because it's such a small team. And therefore that plus a very family kind of culture that which would really work very hard to kind of build and we you know we knew more about we spent more time with them than we did with our spouses and and knew more about them than we probably did with our spouses after time because we're spending so much time together and you know we're not just working yeah. with them but also socializing with them but you know what i realize is that you know when people you know i guess ultimately after a while you start to see the true colors kind of shine a little bit around culture particularly and and supporting the values of the business and particularly saw this you know in this individual the sales organization where sometimes it can be quite individual but you know we're trying to foster this this family environment and i fought long and hard my partner my co-founder to fire this person because i was ultimately i guess if you ask me gut wise did i think this person's going to be around for, for a long time Probably the answer was no. I knew in my gut 
that maybe this person's values were not right long term. But I compromised that because I was kind of fearing a couple of things. One, very reliant on this person. And therefore, if they leave, it's going to have a very big impact on the business. But secondly, more fundamentally, I think it was a bit around the impact I felt around the culture of the organization. So if we then, you know, have this fostering this family environment, which we tried to do in the, in the team with firing somebody, again, maybe it's an excuse, but, you know, again, in the Asia context, we've been probably even more sensitized to that and treating everybody with respect, which is what, of course, you should do, but not wanting to let someone go just because of a performance or culture issue. But ultimately, just because the behavior was not improving, ultimately had to have that that very challenging conversation with that person and say, look, you know, it's time, you know, you've demonstrated you don't want to change. It's time time to go for all of these reasons. But I was most nervous about the impact on the rest of the team in terms of the culture. What I then realized was after I'd fired that person, the feedback I got from the other top performers in the team were, Steve, why, you know, why do you tolerate that bad behavior for such a long time? You know, to the point where, I, you know, it's kind of you're demonstrating that actually this kind of behavior is acceptable. And as a you know, good performer in the organization, it's not sure if it's a company I want to work in if you're going to tolerate that kind of behavior. So what transpired as a result, and probably it's obvious now, but was by removing this person, it had a positive impact on the culture, not a negative impact. I was worried to have a negative impact on the family. But actually, the, you know, I had so many people come to me and said, actually, thank God this person's gone. You know, and I hadn't really appreciated that at that stage. And uh, that was a good lesson, you know, well, a couple of things that one is, you know, if your gut's telling you <laughs> this person's not going to work out, then no matter how many times you try, I mean, you, I, I do believe in second chances, but, you know, third, fourth or fifth, you know, maybe uh, they're going to go anyway. And then secondly, being overly sensitized to the impact of firing someone on the team actually had a rather negative impact, had a positive impact. And so and I, I share that story quite a lot with the, the startups I work with. Just, you know, those two things, the gut plus, you know, the, the, if the person is really, be surprised. Most people, they're not, they're not stupid. The team, the team members are not stupid. They'll, uh, they know <laughs> this person is not the right kind of person for the organization. And uh, if you let that person go for the right reason and communicate why that's happened and you treat the person with respect when they do go and through that process, then I think uh, it's viewed positively, not negatively. You make great points. And, you know, so many founders that I speak to and so many newer leaders struggle with exactly the same situation. And very often it's someone who, you know, as you describe someone who maybe their performance itself might be okay, but they really just aren't a cultural fit. And they, you know, there's this kind of not great cultural fit. And then there's other people who really do consistently exhibit behaviors that are re- really quite contrary to behaviors that you've described in your values as being the way we want it to be around here. And, you know, I think, I think the, the story that you, you, you share is a great lesson for, um, for others who may face the same sort of situation because ultimately, you know, as I was listening to you, it's kind of like there's that, that strong reminder that it's not that the other people around the organization are going to go, oh, you know, the boss did something terrible because they took someone out. Yep. They can see people who are just simply not culturally aligned and not living the values. And if you don't do something about that, that's actually what's going to finish up with them either disrespecting you or maybe even questioning, you know, is this actually the place that I want to be working, right? Exactly right. And in this case, you know, it was a top performing salesperson. So, you know, letting your top performing salesperson go is not a trivial decision to make. But at the same time, if it tolerated that, it would have, you know, it would have, as you said, it would have had those two impacts. One is, okay, this is kind of 
behavior is acceptable in the organization, so therefore anyone can do it and just going to multiply the problem. Or if this is a kind of company that tolerates this and I don't want to be here. And that would be the good people who go, not the bad people, right? Yes. Um, so you'd lose, yes. you'd lose the good, you know, top, top performers as a result of that. And exactly as you just said, and, you know, again, such a strong reminder for, for, for our listeners, in a situation like that, people are going to go. Yeah. It's either going to be the people who are poorly values aligned that you might go or the people who are well values aligned who go, well, this isn't a, a, an organization with the values that I thought it had. So I'm going to go and find that other organization. And, and you know, you stepping in ultimately means that you finish up with the good people staying. And that's, that's so important. And I think no matter how difficult it is to front up to that conversation to say to someone, it's time to go. When deep in your heart, you know it's the right thing, not just for you, not just for the business, the numbers, but for the but for the rest of the team. When you know that, yeah. I think that makes it easier. It does, it does, and I think you know the lesson learned there was also around the communication post exit as well, because quite often, you know, some of the companies are mentor, the people just come and go without any communication, so that just leads to a whole bunch of speculation and gossip rather than say, look, you know, this person's unfortunately had to go because. X, Y, Z, and obviously not do a character assassination, but just explain it from the company's point of view. I think that's because it just reinforces a little bit the, the message, which is, you know, culture is very important, values are very important. And in this case, an example of, you know, someone who's not exhibiting that, that right culture or values. Yeah, and, you know, again, just validating what a strong lesson you're giving to folks, Steve, because I think people often go, I just don't know what to say, maybe I'll say nothing, and... As you're kind of saying, if if you say nothing, the void gets filled with with gossip and rumor. It does. It does. And and that's messaging out of control. Stepping up to the plate might be difficult, but if you don't take that on, then you're basically kind of you know let, letting the wolves run free, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that, and that was also you know a reflection of you know running a smaller in that case a smaller organization versus a larger organization. You know that. That communication kind of happened through osmosis because the team was very small and you're kind of talking to each other all the time. But, you know, when we went from, you know, from that to a few hundred people across multiple countries, then suddenly, you know, that whole need to actually spend time and energy thinking about communicating rather than just happening through osmosis, suddenly it had to become something which was very much a you know, part of the the job as me as a leader to then keep reinforcing things like that. Over communication became ultimately very, very important. Going from that small organization to a large organization, and uh, then becomes even more important that to communicate things rather than let the vacuum uh, be filled with, as you said, speculation or or people's own views of where the business should be going or whatever else. So, yeah, awesome. I'm going to now take you back because you 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 gave us a couple of awesome instances. And the other one that you mentioned was about kind of, I guess, managing the hierarchy and all of those challenges that come particularly with larger organizations. So tell us about how that evolved for you and I guess why you found that difficult and and, and, and how you learned to deal with that. Yeah, I, th- I think the reason why I found it hard was it was a, it was a couple of things. One was I quite enjoyed working with my team, working together at that team and delivering numbers for the team and, you know, that, that whole, I guess, organization which is is acting almost hopefully acting as one but versus suddenly having to think about well okay i'm now sitting there with five of my peers and the boss and everyone is jostling for position everyone is like trying to show how what great job they're doing and on my side one you know i felt very uncomfortable with it because you know i'm not one to 
wants to be beating my chest. And two, also found it a little bit frustrating because, you know, some people are very, very good at doing that. And just because they are very good at doing that, it kind of felt that they would get the recognition and support because they were very good at doing that versus maybe actually just getting on and running the business. And so the people who I saw then get promoted were the ones who were very good at managing stakeholders, managing upwards and and doing that kind of thing. And for me, at that point, that was kind of the, okay, I'm not sure if this is actually this corporate life at a certain point is not for me anymore because I just don't Mm. want to be doing that. I want to be spending Mm. my time and effort doing something that's delivering something meaningful rather than spending half my life doing stuff up, upwards just because it benefits me in a similar way i would never be a politician <laughs> yeah i don't i, don't, I guess just ultimately just have the patience for it so that was a realization it's an important realization because it kind of kind of came 10 years into my career so you know that that was a good you know i guess forcing factor saying well actually maybe you know going in a corporate ladder is not not for me and maybe i should be doing something else and so that's kind of then went through that journey of discovery to decide what what is that really and now realize the stuff yeah. that i was do, doing enjoying in a corporate was essentially building businesses and the stuff i didn't like doing is all the politics and corporate stuff and so uh, i thought how do i maximize the stuff i enjoy doing versus the stuff i don't enjoy doing which ultimately led to with a discussion with a coach actually you know that what you enjoy doing is actually called an entrepreneur and I, in that stage I didn't really put a name to it now it has a name i guess and so that became the the forcing function to kind of from my own career point of view decide what i wanted to do and spend my time on you know as i said i i, I struggle and, and also in a similar way when an organization gets larger startup gets large and you increasingly have more stakeholders to manage and, and boards to manage and this kind of thing in a similar way and maybe um, that's not my strong point so it's maybe a span of control and size and scale and this kind of thing which i have a more of a comfort uh, and maybe you know i got to sort of a 1500 staff in five countries and things building it on my own with my partner but uh yeah i came to that kind of realization maybe past that you know it's maybe not not where i want to be so it's a zero to one one to ten maybe rather than ten to a hundred or a thousand <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so i think that was the key learning you know when we talk to people who are finding elements of being a leader difficult often that the whole issue of kind of managing up comes into the conversation and and for people in larger organizations it's exactly like you said it's kind of like people just kind of describe it as being political and that has its connotations, yeah. but you know the simple reality is in large organisations there are multiple layers and people are jostling for positions and that's just life. Yeah, like, it is. It is. It is. If you're not able to deal with that, then you kind of shouldn't be there. And you kind of you voted with your feet, yeah. right? You, yeah. At a certain point, you said, "I just don't like this stuff." Because people sometimes ask, "So what's the best way to deal with all of that?" And you can talk about what's the best way of dealing with it, but you can't make it go away. No. No. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So you either equip someone to deal with it in a way which you know they gives them the the, the benefit and the, the positive outcome that they're looking for, but without it becoming something which they really resent doing. If you really resent doing it, then maybe, as you said, either you vote with your feet and you do something else. Maybe work for a smaller organisation or build your own business. <laughs> but um, I think having that the tools to work with it and the, and the training and, and coaching to be able to do that, but also deciding whether that's something you want to do or not. This is very important. So, Steve, we've got all of this all of this way and and we haven't actually kind of put a name to that organization that you founded when you when you stepped out. So for the sake of the listeners, do you want to give them, I guess, a little a little short story of uh, of the name of that organization and what you ended up building it to and then let's explore some of the things that were kind of hard in that space. You know, after that I went on a bit of a journey around entrepreneur and, and, and built a few of my own businesses. Um, but the most recent one, I guess, is uh, a company called Property Guru, which is an online real estate company. 
It's used by 40 million people now every month across five markets in Southeast Asia, 1,500 staff. And we basically help consumers to navigate the fairly complex real estate process and make the markets more transparent to equip them to make more confident property decisions. And so we work with real estate agents and real estate developers and banks and on one side and consumers on the other side. So I, you know, I built that and led that as CEO for the first 11 years and came to the conclusion that uh, it was consuming all my life and I missed seeing my kids grow up for the first three years of their life. So uh, I didn't want to miss seeing them grow up. So at that point, I kind of built a succession plan and managed to hire a CEO and, and then you know migrate out the business so I could hand over day-to-day operations and manage that succession process. But uh, as I said, I think you know, through that, that growth activity you know, in a very intense way, I learned a lot. Even though I've been working in corporate life for a long time, you know, for 10 years, and I'd learned some of the the basics and, and some of the theory, I think, you know, doing that in a fast growing startup and tech environment, you know, some of that is, is heightened and the impact both positive and negative is a lot, a lot bigger. And so, you know, learned a lot around some basics. Again, I had to kind of relearn a little bit, you know, you know, obviously one thing that was drilled into me was, you know, just putting people through a proper hiring process, but, you know, when you were growing so fast, you know, we, we, we hired 250 people in one year and we effectively lost 250 people in one year. And, you know, went, you know so, you know, we ended up compromising a lot around culture because we we're trying to hire really fast. And, you know, we had, had people who were alcoholic country manager in one country and uh, someone who's siphoning marketing budget in another country and someone who's working for two companies in another country. Yeah. And so, you know, I guess the not surprising lesson that we you know, that I learned through that process was around, you know, you know, you hire slowly and you fire fast, uh, which of course everyone yeah. knows. But I did that put into practice. No, when you were, you know, growing from in our case one country to four countries in four months, and you know, hiring a whole bunch of people very fast, something had to go. In our case, you know, we compromised a lot. And again, another lesson learned as a result of that. You know, do we need to do that as fast? You know, and I think the again the learning which de- later on discovered was. If we'd taken an extra one or two years to do the same thing and done it in a more systematic fashion and done it in a quality fashion rather than stretch the organization to almost to breaking point and get everybody working under a lot of, a lot of stress and get everybody working, having two or three jobs effectively during that scaling process, we, it, I don't think we would have been in any worse position, you know, if we'd just taken our time. And so I learned a very important lesson around focus and prioritization through that process as well. And just doing things in a quality way rather than a quantity way. In other words, speed, you know, just because mm. you're doing things fast doesn't mean it's going to be a good outcome. Uh, in our case, you know, we almost broke the organization as a result of that. And so being a little bit more considered with limited resources, where do you focus and being a little bit more focused around priorities and doing things in a you know, everyone talks about, you know, blitz scaling and fast growing companies and things, this kind of thing. But to be frank, in my environment, if we'd taken our time on things, we would, I don't think we would have been in a worse position. It would be a lot less stress, for sure. Um, and we would have probably hired as many people and lost as many people in a very short space of time. Yeah, it was quite a quite a painful process to go through, but teaches you a very important lesson, I guess. And which I now carry through into companies I work with and, and, and founders and CEOs I work with now just to be a little bit more choiceful around priorities and focus and not run before you can walk. That's an awesome lesson. Therefore, you know, I have a lot of founders listen to the show and, and the vast majority of founders have aspirations for that moment when kind of like the wind really hits your sails and, and off it goes. And, and, you know, we kind of think of those as being the glory days. But I guess what you're sharing with us is that one level it's full of excitement and, and, and the sense of 
you know, wow, this is really happening. But it's also a time when, when it can go kind of most wrong if you're not prepared to, I guess, have strength of conviction around certain elements. You were saying, I think, I think you mentioned that you, you hire 250 people in a year, which is almost like one every working day. And it's hard to fathom how you could actually do that and make sure that you got everyone on board that was at least values aligned. You know, getting people who are skills aligned is relatively easy, but getting people who are values aligned, it just takes more time. Right? It does. Think, it does. It does. You know, really powerful lesson that you're kind of giving to people that, that keeping the values right and keeping the culture right is sometimes more important than saying, I've just got to run with it because the wind's behind Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing that came out of that process, I guess, was realisation that uh, the bench strength was not in place to enable that growth as well. So it ended up being on the shoulders of me and my partner. And I guess that the whole organisation at that stage was supporting one country. And then suddenly we're asking people to do sales, marketing, customer services, product tech, website, mobile apps for consumers, mobile apps for agents, multiple languages, all at the same time. Whenever pre- the whole organisation was focused on Singapore and suddenly it stretched in all different directions. And then, then also on our shoulders, you know, so myself and my founder. And, and I think you know, the lesson learned was actually starting to build that bench strength that, to, to enable the next stages of scaling rather than try to scale and then put it in place. So we then had to go through a process two years later of actually building the, you know, cleaning up the mess and putting in place the organization to enable that next level of scaling, which is the, the next level mm-hmm. down, the CXOs, and then a middle management and layer in place rather than <laughs> hire people and then put it in place. It's, you know, it's, it's, it sounds obvious now, right? But I mentioned it, but at the time we, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't do it. We we're just running. Yeah, I think uh, that was a <laughs> important mistake and therefore lessons to learn. I think, <laughs> but also we had to learn around delegation again and accountability again. You know, because previously we were doing everything, and suddenly we realised we became, we became the bottlenecks and not very good at uh, holding people to account and so steve and yanni my partner would fly in and fix things and so everyone would carry on just relying on us to fix everything rather than actually build that next bench strength down yeah and steve are you a natural delegator or is that something that you also found a little bit difficult no terrible uh you know control freak perfectionist which is not a good combination to have when you're trying to scale a company and uh it wasn't until we sat down with a, myself and my partner with a coach you know he kind of talked about accountability we talked about delegation and it was like you know i remember that very clearly that that session that i had with with him a guy called uh, pang and he, and he basically just put a mirror up to our faces and said why do you think this is happening why do you think this is happening <laughs> oh i get it now i get it now. it's because we are going in and fixing the problem every time so therefore we're just reinforcing the behavior which is oh, look, steve and yanni will go and fix it and, and so uh, we had to then kind of relearn to put accountability in place. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tremendous lesson and a very powerful way of a coach uh, kind of sending the message back to you. I'm going to do one last time jump because I think it's really important listeners hear a little bit about what you're doing now. So you want to you want to share a little bit about that because there's some really neat stuff that's going on in your world, right? Yeah, well, hopefully. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think, you know, uh, having spent 11 years in the last startup, they're probably just working almost seven days a week. And, you know, I, I kind of as I said I miss seeing my kids grow up for the first three years of life and I wanted to spend some time with them. So I kind of really worked very hard at getting the succession plan in place and making success of that. And that was challenging in its own right, but it gave me the opportunity in, you know, about four and a half, five years ago to kind of take a step back and do that, spend a bit of time, but also thinking about what next. And, and I guess, you know, if I reflect, you know, in 2008, when I started, probably, you, were, you know, it's probably it was an obvious thing for me to do just because it was just 
the market was broken. I had personal frustrations around it. But then in 2018, uh, just every, everywhere I looked, it was a climate drum was beating louder and louder and louder and louder. And the more I researched it, the more scared I got. You know, record temperatures in Siberia and wildfires in Australia, wildfires in the West Coast of the States, you know, record floods, et cetera, and, and record weather damage caused in that year. And th- th- since then, all those records have been broken. And, and I came to start conclusion that you know a lot of the stuff that i took for granted as a, as a, you know when i was a kid you know walking through forests of nature or swimming in oceans not filled with plastic and skiing on snow and you know a lot of that stuff quite foreseeably is not gonna be there for, for my kids but also just the extreme weather and and challenges that are going to be pressurizing pe- particularly people at the bottom of the pyramid and so so you know i kind of conclusion that you know i could go and enjoy myself by yacht and travel around islands and enjoy myself or or be able to look my kids in the eye and say look i knew what was coming and played a very very small part and so challenges were how, where how do you do that and so i had been investing in and helping founders to grow their companies and as a mentor and a coach and so i then flipped my angel investing that I had been doing into that space and then invested over the last four or five years of 25 green tech companies in Asia who are all playing a role or trying to around decarbonization or addressing you know clean energy or helping empower people on the bottom of the pyramid. But then very quickly realized I couldn't do that at scale. And the only way to do that at scale is to kind of partner with other people and raise a fund, which I was quite reluctant to do. <laughs> I don't never wanted to build a fund because I have no aspirations of building a fund, but I have aspirations about having a a big impact on on what can we do around climate change. So we, I came together with with four other people and we launched a climate tech fund for Southeast Asia initially, but also with global ambitions to mitigate 10% of the global greenhouse gas emissions by 2035. It's a very big, hairy, ambitious goal. And so that's what keeps me awake now. So I'm, I'm, I help my portfolio of 25 companies, but also you know, building this fund with my partners, which is, you know, essentially reducing emissions and, and uh, in the short term, you know, so a lot of people are focusing on brand new transformational technologies like nuclear science, hi- rolling out hydrogen, new types of hydrogen or, or carbon capture, which to be frank, we are going to need, but are going to take 20, 30 years to reach scale because you need a lot of infrastructure to get there. And so we have all the technology we need already to reduce emissions by 50%. So how do we deploy that? You know, why don't we have solar or, or renewable energy or, you know, adoption across the whole of Southeast Asia? It's generally quite sunny. You know, why are we still using diesel generators on construction sites? Why are farmers still using diesel water pumps when there are cleaner but also significantly cheaper alternatives? So not only does it have a sustainable outcome, I mean, which, to be honest, no one really cares about in, in, <laughs> in Asia, particularly. And there's no pressure to adopt sustainable solutions mainly. But, you know, so we tackle it from how do we, how do we improve revenue or reduce cost in a material way very quickly by adopting the solution. And therefore, if you do that, you should be able to remove friction to, to enable companies to scale. And so, yeah, we're investing in and building companies which are doing exactly that, working with experienced entrepreneurs and how to scale companies but just happens to be addressing a, an emissions challenge in a, rather than a green premium, we've got a green discount, you know, so it's uh, delivering material financial benefit, top of bottom line with a green benefit. Um, that's, that's what keeps me awake. And that's, uh, you know, I spend my, my life on this subject now from a professional point of view. So supporting businesses to scale in that, in that area. And that's Wavemaker Impact, right? That's Wavemaker Impact and also my Planet Rise portfolio as well of 25 companies. So between the two, I kind of divide my time between the two. So, so Planet Rise is a bit more existing companies and, um, and Wavemaker Impact is about building companies. So you know, the, the bulk of the 
the funding and the entrepreneurs are focused on mobility, for example, in Southeast Asia. That's about 12% of the emissions, but the other, other 88% is almost untouched. And so, you know, every second we're pumping up tons of greenhouse gas emissions, which sit there in, in the case of CO2 for, you know, 100 to 200 to 300 years. So for the next two or three generations, it's there already. So how do you stop that as quickly as possible? How do you stop methane going up now? And so, you know, to think, think about existing technology at scale that can have a, a material impact very quickly. Well, Steve, we'll wrap up here, but I want to just say a huge thank you in the first instance for sharing so much of your experience and knowledge on the leadership journey, but also quite sincerely, and I'm sure I speak for every one of our listeners, you know, thanks for kind of putting the energy that you put into such an important part of making sure that our kids do have a, a, a livable planet and that their kids in, in, in turn do as well. It's um, it's extraordinary to hear someone with your talent um, putting all of your effort into into this space now. And I really, I thank you for the work that you do. And of course, I thank you for being on the podcast. It's been fantastic. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And uh, just, a, just a final point for me on, on this is, that, you know, if anybody's interested in this space, wants to learn more, is considering, you know, moving to a more sustainable role or job or leadership role or even starting a business in this space, I'll be very, very happy to talk to them. You know, uh, anyone who's interested in this space, the door is open. So I'd, I'd welcome any anyone who's interested in this area. That's fantastic. And where should they, where would they find you, Steve? One of the easiest ways is LinkedIn. You know, Steve, I around. M-E-L-H-U-I-S-H, there's not many around. Uh, <laughs> you should be able to find me easily that way. LinkedIn forward slash Steve Mel, I think it is, from memory. Brilliant, and we'll uh, leave all the notes uh, with the uh, on on that in the uh, in, in the podcast notes as well. So, uh, with that, thanks again, Steve. Wayne, thanks very much. For, thanks for having me on, and uh, yeah, see you soon. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do, and keep believing in yourself as a leader.